Apri la terra del sole che porta fortuna Dimentica tutto, rimani sognare anche tu Resta ancora Capri a sognare con me Non lasciare Capri Non lasciare me Welcome to our 17th segment of iArt New York on Radio Free Brooklyn. And the voice we were just listening to is Nicole Renault, a French chanson and accordionist and songwriter hailed by New York Times, having the ethereal soprano voice. Song we played, Resta Ancora e Capri, uh, Stay Silent, Motionless in Capri, from her album Songo di Capri. And we are so happy to welcome Jared Linge. Welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. Uh, Rebecca will introduce Jared in just a moment. Let me just say a few words about iArt New York. This episode is from the series of humanizing role of arts in the wake of the public health crisis. It's a special series uh, in which we invite our previously interviewed guests to respond to pandemic. And it's about resistance resistance of the artists, curators in response to the situation, and strategies on how to deal constructively with this new reality amidst the chaos, and how to heal in this situation, how to find hope, and how to act on it. iArt New York is brought to you by Isabella Gola and Rebecca Major. My name is Isabella, and I'm a visual artist and visual arts and design curator at the Polish Cultural Institute New York. And Rebecca Major is a visual artist studying Masters in Art History at Hunter College and is a curatorial intern at the Jewish Museum. iArt New York is a talk show, an alternative art tour of the Big Apple, in which we bring in special guests and their voices of critical insight about the contemporary art world from New York and the U.S., and now in the state of pandemic. So, hi, Jared. Rebecca? Hi. So I'd like to introduce you uh, a little background. Um, Jared is a contemporary art curator and owner and director of High Noon Gallery here in New York City. He's worked on both coasts of the U.S. He's originally from San Diego, California, where he was director of the George Gallery in Laguna Beach. In 2017, he founded the Gallery High Noon located on Eldridge Street here in New York, as I mentioned, in the Lower East Side, where he represents 18 emerging and mid-career artists. His current exhibition is a group show that opened online last month titled Friends with Benefits, which I'd like to ask you about more because it's so related to, you know, strategies about coping in this pandemic era. (laughs) Um, So, so nice to have you back on the show. Um, Yeah, it's great to be back. Thank you for inviting me. So, yeah, can you tell us more about the online show? Clearly, due to lockdown restrictions, you're not allowed to have openings and people in the exhibition space and the gallery. So how how has it been um, with that new platform? Right, and let me just mention that the, the show we are talking about is titled Friends with Benefits, and it opened on, on May 11th, and you listed the TDB to be determined when it closes, which is very... Interesting. There is 36 participating artists presenting 108 works, and including Jill Levine, which we interviewed on our previous uh, segment with you last year. Thinking about the beginning of your gallery, when when you talked about that in our previous original interview, about the shift from a gallerist perspective amongst you know the artists working in post-recession world with the increasing number of underrepresented artists doing this, all this important, relevant work, now we are making a leap to another big humanitarian and ecological public health crisis. So how do you, how do you find yourself uh, in this important mission, in this new strange reality? And if you could put that in the context of the Friends with Benefits uh, show. Right. So um, you know, I really think that, especially with this last week, uh, what we're really seeing is not just a uh, 
public health crisis, but it's a it's a crisis on uh, many levels of American society, um, which I, I would love to talk more about later. There's, there's currently helicopters circling because of um, all of the marches due to George Floyd's um, murder uh, right. this week. So um, yeah. and we're seeing we're seeing a lot of things happening right now, and, and yeah, the, the dates are all to be determined because I feel like everything. Uh, in, in our country right now is to be determined as information changes uh, daily yeah. about um, when we can open up, what certain safety guidelines are, um, you know, people's, uh, people's situations um, changing in terms of their own safety, their in, in environment. But Friends with Benefits came out of the first online show that I did, which is actually also still up and also still be determined, mm-hmm. um, which uh, was less commercial. It's, it's called Shelter Slash Place, so Shelter Place, because I thought that the uh, the term for what we were all, for the mandate that we were all uh, forced to do, Shelter in Place, was such a mm. strange, gentle, multifaceted phrase, which... You know, I like the the multifaceted nature of of both words, and I wanted to put together a collection of works uh, using only my gallery artists that kind of told a story from multiple, they gave multiple reads without pretending to be something that it's not. Um, I wanted it to feel purposeful and intimate because I felt like initially there was so much noise really immediately um, with everyone in the art world trying to adapt um, at what I felt like was an unrealistic pace, but maybe that's slow-moving Californian in me. But <laughs> um, I wanted to present something uh, that was kind of a non-linear story that was an interesting way for me to kind of step back and consider my own relationship to the situation that we were presented uh, with no clear direction forward, but also re-examine my relationship to my artist's work in a new context. So that was really fun for me. And then and then that led to another online project, uh, The Friends with Benefits, which was initiated. Um, the idea was initiated by um, an artist of mine, Teresa Hackett. Um, and then I ran with it and, and called it Friends with Benefits, but she had suggested, like, um, you know, what about inviting all of the uh, gallery artists to contribute lower priced works um, and invite a friend along. And because in I had announced in the release of uh, Shelter Place that I was going to be donating uh, 30% of the gallery's commission to the Ali Forney Center, which is a center that's dedicated to helping homeless LGBTQ plus youth, there was, a again, a real purposeful element to why I was bothering to present what I was presenting. So, you know, the idea of the benefit and the friends of the artists became friends of benefits. So, um, you know, Shelter Place didn't have a strong commercial component in mind when I, when I put together. So I wasn't policing any of the um, artists that were invited to be a part of the Friends with Benefits show. So my 18 artists plus another 18 artists, you know, unless they asked for my opinion, of course, then I would, you know, but... but uh, they all chose three works each, priced no more than $1,000. Um, so it was a way of providing accessible sales and also help raise money for the center. And that so far has been really successful, and um, it's led to people looking into and collecting work by other artists. And um, I got introduced to new artists, which was fun, and it's sort of kind of just self-pollinated through the uh you know, the, the, the crosshairs of social media. Um, and I was really pleasantly uh, pleased with the uh, with the, the results we've had so far since the show's been up for um, not quite three weeks. Mm-hmm. And because, uh, you know, you can just try things right now. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. And speaking of shifts and the new ideas that, that you turn around in this show... You're actually presenting a new curating strategy in which the the gallery artists are inviting guest artists to participate, and each artist uh, yeah. selected three works, priced no more than one thousand, with with fifteen percent of total sales, donated to the previously mentioned Ali Forney Center for Homeless LGBTQ Young Community, which is amazing yeah, uh, uh, yeah. purpose. Yeah. 
so would you talk more about that and the the role of the social media here because you're uh, you're relying heavily obviously like we all are um, now in promoting of the culture on social media and the digital platforms Is, are these tools uh, working for you and are you sure. uh, it sounds to me as a very very democratic way of uh, approaching curating this is like a true, very democratic uh, way. How does the social media and the digital tools help in making that goal c more clear? Right. Um, so, uh, right. I mean, what I really hope to see from all of this is for a more democratic art world to emerge. So I think that when you mention democratic, I mean, I mean, that, that's, I think that we're all hoping to see, you know, not not go back to normal, but see a better world emerge from this. And um, yeah. I'm hoping that at this time, people have found that living with art that they love is something that's important to them. And we talk about online platforms. Uh, you know, we're seeing we're seeing it implemented in different ways. I personally didn't do anything too far out of the norm of what I'd been doing. I just kind of uh, had taken more advantage of, it. and I'll go more into that. But for instance, I'm looking at you know we've seen the online fairs. Uh, it kind of feels like, well, it hasn't been a huge success, but it's, it's kind of a privilege of acting like things are normal um, while the sales are not reflecting that in this transition that sales are trying to do online. And although I like the transparency, you know, NADA had this idea with a sort of community-based social approach to an art fair where the breakdown was, it was 50... Uh, it was a 50-50 split, but it was, so the gallery got 50 to split between them and the artist. So gallery was guaranteed 25% of sale, artist was guaranteed 25% of sale, and then the rest of 50%, 40 went into a communal pool that was split between gallery and artist, and then 10% went to NADA. And I applaud them for that kind of ingenuity. I like that social approach, but I think that online platforms uh, make things very limiting. Um, including the the virtual viewing rooms, you know they're still subject to camera distortion and complicated interfaces. And in a gallery like mine, which is less than 400 square feet, <laughs> you know there's really nothing that I can that you can get from a virtual tour uh, that you can't get from basically seven or eight solid installation photos. So for me, um, I've just was trying to take a more straightforward approach uh, with presenting things online and just rely on word of mouth and good work, in my opinion, mm -hmm. <laughs> the same way that I, that I had been, except that, you know, what I lose is that I've always based the structure of my business around accessibility and customer service, which I can still provide to a degree, obviously, but it's not the same as, you know, when you're actually in the gallery interacting with clients. And I believe that when collecting the sort of art that I show at my gallery, despite the solid CVs of the artist, it's always going to be an emotional purchase, and you have to love it. And a part of loving it is, um, you know, seeing it in person. So I've just had to be kind of flexible with, like, payment plans. And, you know, if you don't love it, you don't have to commit to it. And it just it, it feel like every sale is a case-by-case -case basis, which is an interesting learning experience because... I don't have access to all the work right away. I'd have to get on the subway and, you know, schlep to the gallery, which I don't necessarily feel so safe in doing right now, or it depends on artist accessibility to the work as well right now. So everything's a bit case by case, but you just, but in, in a, in a good way that it also helps kind of build relationships because you're removing a lot of the facade between the artist gallerist relationship and the artist and the uh, gallerist collector relationship as well. Mm -hmm. I can, kind of just forces us to be more real with each other. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can see somehow, and I'm just kind of speaking through conjecture and kind of imagining because I'm not an art dealer, but um, this idea that you were mentioning about how there's kind of a leveling of the playing field in the moment because these, um, these art fairs have kind of all gone online and mm -hmm. so in a way, although, of course, their ability to reach a wider audience is still greater because, you know, essentially all of those people that would have gone to the art fairs in person are now going online. But if, if they're not able to interact with the artwork in the same way, they might, in that sense, maybe 
those same customers or the same clients rather would be just as apt to go to other galleries and websites and platforms because it's all done virtually on a click of a button. And so in that sense, maybe this is a ripe time to put one's foot in the door in a way. Yeah, what do you think I about mean, that? <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely a time to feel things out for sure. I mean, yeah, there's, you're right. With, with everything being on the same screen, you know, what's the difference between a, an advanced Google search and, uh, you know, uh, Basel, Hong Kong? <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, besides, I guess you know one is uh, is a bit more curated. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, with art fairs, you know that's always been an interesting beast. It's something that I've I've only ever worked in art fair um, with other galleries that I was um, you know directing. So at at high noon, I've not participated in art fairs. I don't love the model for the reason of all of the hierarchy, and it's also just I think that my money is better spent not taking that risk because I've seen it go so many different ways. But, uh, you know, with art fairs, you have the logistics of travel and lodging and uh, parties. And all of these are very social and require not only the the risk that you're already, you know, putting into an art fair, but um, then there's just the added uh, anxiety of, of a, a pandemic or post-pandemic, I, I don't think it's something that we're going to be seeing for quite a while attending an art fair, um, just because it's mm-hmm. dependent on so many factors. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in a way, yeah, the, the playing field is leveled by uh, social media, and, and, and I like that. And you definitely can see which galleries were kind of set up for these sort of things. Like I think David Warner, who developed Platform New York, had a already had a really great implementation of, you know, virtual viewing rooms. Um, they're all mm-hmm. really beautifully designed and, 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 and curated, and they feel really purposeful. And the idea that, you know, he's bringing on um, lesser-known galleries to be to share that platform, I think is something that is um, important. And, you know, however you feel about, you know, institutionalized mega-galleries like that, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it is kind of what's best for everybody. And so can you describe their incentive? What is it, what do they, Zwerner do exactly? They list galleries on their website or how do they promote? Yeah, they, well, they, they, they partnered up. Um, oh yeah, they, they are on, on uh, the website and um, they, uh, you know, it's, it, it, again, you're just, you're talking about a virtual space, but they're, they're providing basically access for their customer base to other gallery programs that they believe in um, sort of curated through the lens of what David Zwerner is so that when you you know visit Platform New York uh, through David Zwerner you have access to um, galleries that maybe his clientele wouldn't have been on their radar so that's another kind of interesting democratic uh, element that I've seen about this and it's good because first of all it you know whatever the intentions behind David Warner uh, are for this, whether or not it's altruistic or uh, or not. It, at the end of the day, it's it's a positive result, you know. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, so and that, and, that uh, sorry to interrupt, but that has um, yeah. that has uh, arisen explicitly in response to the pandemic, correct? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's totally in response to the pandemic. Exactly. That brings to mind a an interview with the director of Hauser & Wirth that I listened to a few weeks ago. Mark Payo of Hauser & Wirth was in conversation with curator and art historian Jokaim Pizarro. It was hosted by Hunter College, and it was a podcast called The Art World During and After a Pandemic. And he, Mark Payo, said very similarly to what you're describing about how the larger galleries, his gallery, Hauser & Wirth, really has to make a um, like an incentive towards promoting smaller galleries just for their own um, health, like economic health. And I'm not, he didn't go into specifically how that worked, but it really. Yeah, I was curious. That, I, was, I was curious. Like, did he elaborate on that? <laughs> no, but this. <laughs> Obviously, the, the, fi- the financial, uh, the finances behind these mega galleries is, is such a mystery to everyone. He left it um, more general as 
discussing the value and the importance of the smaller galleries and that kind of ecosystem. He didn't elaborate why, but I'm sure it had it has to do with, in a general sense, how the structure of the art market functions and that without that base of smaller galleries, you know, where does the next wave of pool of talent, you know, generate from, you know, and, right. and you know, it's a conversation and it has to, it can't just be the top blue chip galleries that exist, that win in the end, because that's, it's, it's stifling. And I don't think that they, their credibility also, I think, ultimately. I think um, it is about certainly credibility and optics as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was very general kind of um, statement, but it was an insistent statement too. And I feel like what you're describing with Warner is that it seems to be aligned with um, Mark Peo's assessment and vision too. Yeah, well, you know, and they were also galleries that were pushing for a, a, a tiered payment method for um, some of these art fairs because otherwise, you know, uh, there's only a, it was going to be the same handful of galleries that were going to be able to afford show at Basel year after year, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I don't really believe that the type of business model that um, these mega galleries have is something that uh, is going to happen again. Um, you know, my, I, like, then that's why I, I talk about flexibility um, and, and, and democracy in the art world is because I don't envision my gallery ever becoming, you know, this this basically a, 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 a museum space like like those Chelsea galleries. Um, I think that uh, the market will shift before then. That will become not a necessity. And I don't know if virtual reality will play more of a role, but, I mean, you know, the, the, to take on that sort of um, uh, brick-and-mortar uh, commitment I think will be a thing of the past. I don't, I don't see... Mm. I don't... I don't just given the economic uh, So you're saying that, you can envision a time yeah. when a gallery opens and they will be online only? That's uh, yeah, I mean, no, I'm, I'm smiling sure right now because well. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm smiling right now because that sounds so uh incredible in a way, but um I can't imagine. I mean, yeah, if, if you can't delineate between, you know, uh, uh or differentiate between um you know, a virtual experience and a real one, or if the, or if the virtual experience is satisfying enough, then why not? Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm saying specifically is I think it's going to be an extremely rare thing for emerging gallerists like myself 20 years in the future to have grown to a place where, you know, we will we would have a, a sort of business model like these mega galleries do. I think that mm-hmm. priorities will change. I think the market will change. I don't think that... Um, it's going to be relevant anymore. So uh, whatever that shift looks like, I'm sure it will include virtual reality. And hopefully all these other promises that science needs to make good on, like flying cars and teleportation and everything. Who knows? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's so interesting because the art world really is a very social space. It's really about seeing artwork in person and um going to that space, meeting people. And of course, meeting people is not, is not necessary for the artwork per se, but there's this idea of um, in real time, in real space. It's very much connected to, you know, you go to a museum to enjoy the actual artwork. These virtual tours of uh, museums, I feel like, has anyone gone and done that? No. I'd much rather listen to an artist talk about their work than seeing a sure. virtual walkthrough in a it's very different than let's say um what you're you, what you're doing is putting an artwork really good quality resolution artwork and you can see it that's i would say valuable of course it's better to see it in person but there is value to that um i guess what i'm trying to say is this prolonged social distancing i think it's not good for the art world in no. the long run, it's so connected to, to seeing the work in life. And I personally don't think that it can go entirely over to virtual. What do you think, Isabella? No, when I'm talking about virtual, I'm talking about like, I'm talking about like super sci-fi virtual where it's very hard to, <laughs> I'm like talking like, I'm talking like the matrix. Of mm-hmm. our I mean, until there's like really a, <laughs> mm-hmm. a where you can put on like goggles and I mean, exactly. I'm talking about like when there's, 
there's a real lack of distinction between what is real and what is virtual, but that's a long ways away. <laughs> so mm-hmm. will that happen in the future? Probably at some point. But what you were mentioning was that there was a sort of the tribal element mm-hmm. um, of the art world, uh, which is something that I've really admired New York for. And, uh, you know, I mean, and, and, and there is something to not just, I mean, viewing a, a piece of work is, is and experiencing it is very personal and very intimate, but there's also the really important element, um, not just for viewing it, but for creating it as well, of conversation that then pushes your, your, your understanding of the work or your creation of the work forward. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, that, that tribal element is something that I've seen is really, you know, unique to uh, New York. You know, uh, this idea of creating a gallery that feels like a family, that provides creative support and uh, sharing ideas. With the mm-hmm. online uh, 3D shows, I mean, museums have been really adapting this new technology called the 3D Matterport for existing shows in space. I think those are really effective tools. I organized uh, and co-curated a symposium between two museums that are separated by a width of the country. One in uh, New Paltz, Samuel Dorsky, and another one, uh, Robert and Francis Fullerton in San Bernardino. And in uh, still in pre-pandemic outbreak times, there was supposed to be two separate conferences, panel discussions. And because of this pandemic, uh, th- we joined forces with the two museums and I produced those, you know, the 3D renderings of, of those both exhibits so that panelists joining from East and the West Coast could look at both shows without, you know, the possibility of actually traveling and, and looking at the work. So those tools actually r- were really effective in communicating the visuals and that was very helpful, and I, I find it very effective with the work in right, so, space. So you're saying that in, in, in that context... Um, uh, right, when... You know, the, the, the problem presented a solution that was actually uh, better than what it would have been otherwise. In this case, it was just, you know, it's hard to compare, but I think if those panels mm-hmm. happened in respective places as planned before, you know, they, they would be kind of local very localized in outreach Mm -hmm. and they would have, you know, different resonance, different response. In this case, we were able to invite more people and combine the content, combine both um, ideas for different events and create a one discursive space for uh, for this artist uh, in response to this this work of Jan Safka, actually, Mm -hmm. And uh, do research based on the, you know, the 3D Matterport uh, scans of, of both spaces. And that also enriched the, the symposium itself because people were referring to works from respective museums and discussing amongst each other on Zoom. It was, uh, you know, it was, uh, uh, actually it was a YouTube uh, premiere, but uh, people were responding to each other, uh, you know, from the panel and then the audience. It was uh, over 600 people that were watching at, at some point. So that's, that was really, I thought that was really effective. And I'm not sure if this many people would be in space if those two yeah. events were, took part, you know, place separately. But this is just like my recent experience from, with the 3D uh, platforms like Matterport. Or have you used those? And have you found no, I, I, those effective? And, and what about the Zoom webinars and, and panels that are organized through that? Are, are you seeing that as a new opportunity? Are you avoiding them? Do you find them useful, effective? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, participating in the ones that I'm interested in in terms of, you know, seminars and whatnot. I was kind of mentioning earlier about, you know, with the, uh, the, the virtual models you were talking about, I think it's great that, uh, in the example you were providing of, of uh, the symposium, how it gave a solution to a problem that you weren't looking to address otherwise. Like, okay, well, if it's going to be virtual anyways, then everyone gets the same access and every and more people get access. Right. I was saying with, with MySpace, I just don't see that it would provide anything other than a complicated interface. And again, 
just because my gallery's small, I don't think it's relevant to 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 what my space is. Um, I just think that for what I'm doing with actually with an exhibition I have actually installed, that just installation shots will do the trick. Because again, you're still subjected to uh, in the, in these virtual models to you know lens distortion, everything. But um, I think it's great, you know, in, in cases where it can actually help people look at the art world not as such an insular thing, mm -hmm. like in the example that you had given with the symposium. Right, right. And I, I actually think that Pinon Gallery space would look pretty good with this tool. I mean, that's, you know, something for maybe after, you know, this, the segment. But uh, uh, I, I think, I <laughs> think especially with works like... hanging in space, like you have this precise amount of details. You know, this tool is still new in the art world, this is a tool for real estate, for for business, for selling mm -hmm. real estate. And but when when it when I saw it applied in actual museum space, I was amazed in the amount of detail. You can walk up, you can place matter tags next to the artwork, look at details of the impasto like brush marks on the painting. I was really amazed with the amount of detail. But that, that's something to debate on. I found that tool very effective. It's different when you create a space yeah. from scratch, a digital space from scratch, and you put works, you know, digitally in the virtual space. That's different when you actually I've, scan I've a physical space. I've seen some of that space. too, actually, though. So, I'm um, sorry to from, switch subjects, but I've been this burning question. So, with our other guest, previous guest that we had on, um, Jason Clay Lewis, the director of the Royal Gallery. So, we were talking about the emotional side of the pandemic as an artist and a gallery director and mm -hmm. how has it been for you? Of course, we're talking so much about like the business side and strategies of, and trying to predict the future on the, those levels. But we were discussing like the many stages that we personally have kind of gone through. And for me personally, like fear and then noticing time in a different way and then of course optimism and making the most of it and looking at the bright side and how we as artists like make new artwork in our time off and just the, the, all of these different kind of emotions that go th along with this generally horrible uh event so yeah what's your insights on can you elaborate on well uh that's a good question i think it's a really important question and that's um you know, that's the question I was trying to address in, in my uh, online shelter place exhibition is that just uh, I personally have actually been uh, very stable through this whole thing. I mean, I've dealt with obsessive compulsive disorder for uh, most of my life. So I've lived out this doomsday scenario in my head many, many times. And when it, oh, <laughs> when really? it, when it comes down to it, mm -hmm. I'm very compliant with you know, social distancing and, and staying safe. And, you know, at, at this time I'm doing things like I'm, I'm making sure that I chant every day, um, which is something that I do for myself. Um, I'm, I'm going to sleep when I'm tired. I'm waking up when I want to wake up. I'm not placing a lot of parameters on that. And I guess I also just have this sense that this condition is temporary. And, um, you know, I think having these projects really you know, whatever it is, it is helpful. But I don't think that anyone should force anything on themselves. You know, something that I've been talking to a lot of artists and other people in the creative industries about is that, you know, feeling this lack of motivation. And and I think that because we're spending so much time on social media, for instance, which ironically is also one of our greatest assets, it's also this place where people curate how they're perceived. And it's very easy to feel like you're not doing enough during this time, as mm -hmm. if there's a precedent to what any of us should be doing. So then, you know, if you're not feeling motivated, obviously the worst thing that you can do when you're in that state is to beat yourself up for feeling that way um, instead of just accepting that it is a natural ebb and flow that is affected by outside factors. I mean, maintaining a studio practice is something that's generally built into people's daily routines as it is, and I think that there's this misconception with a lot of people that, oh, well, if, you know, if, if no one's working, that means more time to paint. Well, that's not always the case. I mean, 
you know, when everything gets disrupted, that might mean that your routine changes completely. Maybe you have someone in your life that you have to take care of. Um, maybe uh, your living situation has is, is been interrupted and you don't have access to that. There's just there's a lot of different things that go into everyone's personal experience. And so I think, you know, the best thing that we can do is just to be gentle with ourselves and communicate or not communicate with people as much as feels right for us, depending on what we need from that interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, That's there are times really where, like, I said. want to talk to people all day and just talk about ideas, get inspired, and I'll have a week where I really just don't need to talk to anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the, the, the emotional component is, especially in New York, something that is not often taken into consideration because we're just so used to a pace. Right. We're used to a very high level of responsibility and pace. And and I think that to add to that list that you had started with housing interrupted or other factors that might disrupt a person's creative flow, I would add worry to that list because worry is a full-time job. Absolutely. I think that this pandemic has been very worrisome. And the more news you delve into, the more worried you get. So if I had changed anything from my personal handling of how I I handled this is I think I became too involved in following the news and that fed fear and then and fear and worry and that but you know everyone has their own process and I think also there is a little bit of a you know letting go of that high paced energy and when you let go of that there is also a tiny bit of exhaustion. I don't know if that's kind of an oxymoron because exhaustion is a pretty intense no, word. Not, I mean, well, so you can't say just, a, I'm just a little bit exhausted. No, exhaustion is like, uh, it's a pretty, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty intense word. I think there is a moment of like, wow, I did yeah, all I that and now I can just sleep till noon, you know? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I think, well, there's also a lot of, you know, latent fatigue that I that's think That's what is, I, yeah, perfectly said. It, it's fatigue. just, but also, it's it's not just about the pandemic. Like I said, you know, we, in this past week, I mean, this is really, I mean, I'm going to talk about, you know, what we're referring to in a broader sense, not just in an insular art world, but this pandemic has shown us how, like, how our gallery is going to look at providing a service to a society that isn't as market-driven, um, that does account for those sort of emotional needs. And, and I don't know what that's going to look like, and it might be a complete pipe dream, but... I think it was yesterday. I was watching an interview with uh, Anderson Cooper and uh, Dr. Cornell West, and he was talking about how, you know, uh, Cornell West was talking about how we were witnessing a, a failed experiment um, that is America, uh, and it really resonated. Like, really resonated with me. It does feel like that. That, and he was saying that you know, America has not, despite more than uh, two hundred years, or despite of having two hundred years. Uh, has not been able to provide equal opportunity for its people. In terms of the challenges presented to us during this pandemic, um, I just feel like we're witnessing the perfect storm uh, that exacerbates all of these latent issues that are inherent to America uh, from the beginning. Um, you know, it's like it was. I was trying to get ready for this interview, and right before that, I had uh, the protesters that I was like, for the first time, like, I'm like, oh, man, I wish I would be out there with them. Oh, wait a minute. I, uh, you know, don't feel safe being around people, you know, with, with is my mask clean? I don't, you know, so there's all this stuff that comes into play. And it also brings into focus how all of these elements of society are inherently linked and institutionalized. Um, you know, you can't have a functioning creative society without having a society that promotes racial justice, uh, without a society that denounces the rise of fascism in government. Um, you can't have a functioning creative society without having a society that commits to the health of all of its citizens. And so all of these things, I think, are weighing collectively on us, and artists and, and people who work in the arts are inherently creative people and, you know, I'd say the the most simple job description is that we respond to world events. So, I mean, the feeling of over being overwhelmed and fatigued or kind of, uh, you know, uh, ping-ponging back and forth between 
fatigue and anxiety uh, it's just kind of mm-hmm. par for the course, I think. Yeah, I think that's really interesting about the quote that you brought up. And um, Well, he said it much more eloquently right. than I did. An important factor in the quality of our lives is corporate rule and the power that they have, and sometimes very silent, and think that they get away with a lot because... Absolutely. Um, and, and, I mean, anyone... Anyone who was trying to get help for as a small business at this time definitely saw that, <laughs> definitely felt that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I actually wanted to make a reference to the, the first relief package. If, if you were seeking any government aid at this time and thinking about like how New York galleries are uh, seeking rent relief from the state governments in the wake of this uh, coronavirus shutdowns. And some dealers actually were talking about preparing for a rent strike after the first stimulus bill, you know, addressing the second two trillion stimulus package, which just uh, actually passed last Wednesday. And I I wonder because, you know, it's economy, it's all tied with the real estate and uh, our sense of uh, belonging and sense of centeredness and uh, groundness is dependent on the real estate. And this you know, even the the early history, you know, like um, a right to vote was dependent on, you know, on a property. On uh, owning land, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So this is the land and the right to belong is dependent on that very much. And um, I am actually, I am following this, this bill that was drafted, the rent relief bill that yeah, may freeze and, and suspend <laughs> rent payments. Right now, but that? I, like, yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure where it's going, but there's been all these initiatives. And I wonder how did you apply or did you look into any relief on the rent for your space? Yeah. What do you think about the second trillion stimulus package, the coronavirus aid relief that just passed? Do you see any you know, uh, opportunities for you? I mean, we'll see. Uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to talk about because it's all been very confusing and it's also been changing as it's been being implemented. And unfortunately, it's not just my ineptitude. <laughs> you know, a number of other gallerists and uh, people in the industry that I've spoken to about these things are uh, having the same frustrations. And of course, what the Democrats in Congress were trying to prevent from happening, being that these programs would be prioritized for banks bigger clients and the money would be exhausted before reaching the littler guys is what largely came to pass mm-hmm. um, the first time around. So um, my lawyer, who is also my best friend, uh, she's been incredible. I mean, you know, with, with her information. But um, And so she's anyway, helping she, you to navigate through these, you know, arcane paperwork and um, legal hurdles with like trying to get the stimulus is that I mean, within within her power. I mean, yeah. she she can, you know, she's not she can't uh, submit an application or anything. But she she did send me a whole briefing, you know, on how to make sure I take advantage of what's being offered. And uh, this was even before the, my bank was even set up to accept applications. I did it right through the SBA. Right, and, the online. Uh, yeah. There's two programs, and one is through a bank, and one is online. And, like, apparently the online form yeah. is relatively easy, but then there's a whole other set of paperwork after that. Well, what, yeah, there is. And so what happened with me, I didn't apply for the PPP, which because I don't think I was eligible as a sole business owner without full-time employee mm-hmm. uh, at the time, um, which I guess this now uh, I will be is what I was. Told. I don't know. There's so much information going around. But I'm you know not what? It's not sure. even a lot of money so. because it only covers your employee for three months or something like that. So yeah. unless your employee made a lot of money, you know what I mean? It's it's not like you can ask for any amount that you feel like your business needs. It's really related to like their W two. It's not freelance, right? So, so that, so that's why, yeah. At, I think that there's, they're changing something about that. Um, uh, I mm-hmm. know that I, that um, unemployment was was extended to uh, small business owners who were forced to close um, their businesses. You know, I mean, I've been in, trying to be really uh, proactive about applying for everything. What I thought was the most interesting was when I applied for the um, economic injury disaster loan, right? And 
initially, it was supposed to come along with a grant of $10,000. And this was just $10,000 across the board of emergency money provided to small businesses. So I applied for that before banks were even taking applications. So I applied right through SBA.gov. And um, after a month, I received this direct deposit of $1,000 into my bank. And I was like, where did that $1,000 come from? <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, then when I talked to my lawyer, she said, oh, well, it was originally $10,000. But then, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to anyone, they switched up protocol and uh, decided to do $1,000 per full-time employee. So if it's just you, the owner, that means you only got $1,000. Oh, um, that's so, even less than the individual uh, economic impact payment, which is 1200 for each yeah, individual. I mean, I've, oh, I've my God. The mail. Yeah, I haven't gotten yeah. mine either. I mean, it's, it's just you can get lost in all these complications looking for ways to access the relief. The Small Business Association, uh, I think... It's under 500 employees. You can you can be called small business, and I know I, I, I heard on the incredible. news that that's actually, pretty big. Yeah, that's pretty big. And actually, businesses and that's 500 employees per location. Yes, <gasps> and that's not even 500 employees as a company. That's per location. What? <laughs> so basically, this it excludes ri- Amazon. It was it was rigged <laughs> the whole and was, Walmart was, was so rigged. <laughs> but, so then, rigged. But here, here's the strangest part. I got to say the strangest part. This is not fair. Applying for the loans. What they asked for was comparing two months from this year and the years that they set to default were January and February with the same two months from last year. And what you had to do was submit paperwork that proved that you had at least a 25% loss in revenue for those two months. Now, me, being a business that hasn't even been open for three years, this year's uh, January and February looked a lot better than last year's January and February just because, you know, I had a whole nother year of business under my belt. And also, no one knew to take the pandemic seriously at that time during January and February. Right. So it was the strangest set of criteria that ultimately ended up them asking me for more paperwork, for more information, and now everything's still in limbo. So who knows what's going to come of it. But right. I'm just lucky that the initiatives that I took with these uh, online, um, you know, projects has been paying off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, good. I'm happy to hear that. And the work is so beautiful. And it's it's also really interesting to see what your artists, how they curated their friends. Like, it feels like a social um, exercise, you know, as a viewer, even though I don't know any of these people personally, but still like this idea of like, it's their friends artwork, somehow it feels social. And we were just talking about that before, like we're removed from that social sphere and we can't actively meet people like, but it just somehow feels like we are because we know that these people know each other and they like each other and it's their friends artwork and you should see it too so it has that kind of fun yeah there yeah you know. i thought that it was nice it, was, it had a real kind of warm feeling about that and it was also kind of interesting to look at something um really objectively within my business because i feel like um you know i know all of my artists work so uh intimately um and not just their current work but you know their the trajectory of their work so to be introduced to these new artists was fun and also an opportunity to, you know, kind of uh, uh, just look at something um, that I wasn't kind of, that, that that was surprising. To me. Yeah, even the invitation is um, it's two rows of names and then these connective lines that connect them, and this idea about connectivity. Because usually in a in an exhibition, artists are brought together based on their artwork. You know, if there's a mm-hmm. connecting theme in the artwork or the quality of their artwork, but they may or may not know each other. And here in this show, it feels so much more about like knowing each other is so important um, for this show. In yeah, particular. no, I, yeah, I, I I I really like that aspect of it. I thought, um, and again, I, I have to give. Uh, I mean, I ran with it, but really, the, the idea came from uh, came from Terry Hackett. Um, she's always so thrifty in thinking up, uh, mm-hmm. you know, ways of moving forward, and her artwork reflects that as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, she's yeah, she's a, she's a workhorse. So, um, 
Yeah, it was interesting to see. Wonderful. Um, So I also wanted just to remind our listeners that Jared was our past guest uh, not that long ago, November. It was the 12th episode. And in that episode, we also had the pleasure of interviewing one of his artists, Jill Levine, who was preparing for her exhibition at the time at your gallery. So that was a really amazing and fun interview. So I, I hope that our listeners check that episode out. Yeah, I remember having a lot of fun. Jared, <laughs> it was so wonderful to have you on our show and be back and talk about your current initiatives. And we are glad to hear that you're doing well. And do Thank you have you, any closing yeah. statement, any positivity you want to give to our listeners and uh, for the more democratic world that we hope will emerge will pass November 3rd? <laughs> I guess my a closing message it would be, you know, just... Um, I mean, beyond the concerns about that we all have about the economy, I just think the idea of using your platform as best as you can to generate connections is really important. And I can't stress enough, I think, the idea of gearing all of our missions and our businesses, be they nonprofit or commercial, uh, towards developing a more sustainable economy for everybody. And I think that we have a lot of um, social, environmental, economic factors that shown us that importance and i think that that's what we need to really work towards so that we're not just returning to normal we're you know returning to something better thank you for that yeah and uh speaking of like the the rent i this is something on oh, my I mind address that part yeah i i mean i'm looking for a new place actually because we are ending our lease in a month and i'm living through like very difficult time of change and you know it has its impact it's like this you know the feeling of groundness it's like i'm on shaky grounds now i don't know where i'm gonna where am i gonna end up you know leases up and we don't want to we can't renew it for many reasons you know that i can't talk but like we can't renew it so i mean i can't do it on my own but should i do it should i not like i have i have no idea what to do so, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, so with, with my rent situation, you know, obviously through these loans that I was applying for, um, if you were anything that was paid towards expenses like rent was going to be forgiven. And since it's still on limbo, I actually have not paid rent uh, for April or May, and I will not be paying for June. And I've not heard anything from my landlord yet. I mean, I've been an ideal tenant. So um, I'm really not sure how it's going to go because we haven't been provided any guidelines in terms of, I mean, evictions have been, you know, waived, or not waived, that evictions have been put on hold. um, Yes. But no one really knows what that looks like um, because it's basically up to everyone to have that discussion individually with their landlord. Um, So a friend of mine got uh, an email from her landlord, um, she owns a uh, uh, antique jewelry store in the Diamond District, and he said that he would not be collecting rent uh, during time that they were not able to be in business, and he was going to be reducing her rent by half for a whole year. Are you talking so, about commercial space? The, the commercial, resident? not your apartment, yeah. right? It's the commercial. I'm talking about, I'm talking about commercial space. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I'm paying. I'm paying rent on my apartment, but not um, in my gallery because I can't be there. And. Um, Mm-hmm. So that's and, really um, interesting. So commercial wow. spaces have been slashed in half. I mean the well, rent. No, no. This was this was in the case of my of my friend's business. Um, that's there's there's no mandate for how it's going to be handled across the board, other than no mm-hmm. one can be evicted until like August twentieth. Uh, there needs to be guidelines for what happens after that, and not just leave it up to people to negotiate with their landlords. Right. My lease is up at the end of July. So I'm going to be in an interesting position. So I'm going to do some homework on, I mean, you know, there are plenty of spaces around uh, Lower East Side. Right. Depending on how all of this I goes. Think, I think you're I mean, right. I think it's going to be a buyer's market, so to speak, um, because uh, businesses are really hurt by this. And to have um, somebody start a business during this era it's it's going to be very bleak and so i think that landlords are going to be really grateful for whoever they can hold on to and they're going to be really nice and they're just going to cut prices and all of that i think 
I, I hope so. I mean, I know, I know I, got, I got a bargaining tool, which is which is great. I mean, the fact that my lease is coming up at this time, you know, leaves me with some flexibility. But again, I just don't know how to really go about the conversation. My friend suggested let them contact you. Don't contact them about it because, uh, as my dad would say, the person who says the first number always loses. <laughs> really? Really? So he hasn't been in touch with you. He has not sent the the rent release uh, communication, and you have not been uh, reaching out. (laughs) No, it's because when you say the first number, um, whoever you're negotiating with kind of knows where your ballpark is. Mm -hmm. Maybe they would come back best to know the other person's uh, threshold before you give away your hand. Right, exactly. Like, for instance, so if you went to your landlord, this is hypothetically, and said, look, I'll give you half – who knows? Maybe he was thinking, "I'll just waive your rent entirely for this month." Like you don't yeah, know. Oh yeah. You don't know what they're exactly thinking. You don't know. <laughs> oh my God! So Good yeah, luck with negotiation. Because they can always come back with less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my landlord sent the lease renewal. Usually, they send it three months before, and now he uh-huh. sends in the end of uh, you know May. And they actually increased our rent in the lease renewal. No. They suggested increasing. They think that, I don't know what, where they, where they their heads are. They think that they're are. living in, the, in 2019. <laughs> I, I think insane. this is the most unprecedented and, and rude. This is just really rude. So on top of all, like, they, they probably think that we'll stay because we've been there since 2014. So they, they, oh, they will stay, mm-hmm. and they've been increasing rent every year for the last, like, uh, three years, and they increased more than the year before. So we are just wow. shocked, and we will need to negotiate that. You would not assume only that because they know that you're good tenants, that they would, yes. you know, want to keep you around and give you a break. That's really shitty. That's really, really, like, landlords should be giving away cupcakes, not really <laughs> rent renewals. <laughs> On CNN News, I heard 71% of New York City leases are not being renewed. Commercial? Wow. Commercial? Residential. 71% of residential. 71% are not being renewed. And did it say if that was on... Okay, um, fact check that. They, Where did you read that? That's an incredible well, number. Read, but I'm also curious to CNN. hear if that was because... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to hear the, the numbers behind those numbers. If it was because landlords raised rent or the landlords kept the rent the same or the people had to find something cheaper or... I, you know what I mean? I'm curious about You know, I think a lot of people are moving out because I think yeah. a lot of people have lost jobs. And so if... Okay, so it really speaks to a certain demographic of people that move to New York because of a job or because to pursue a particular, you know, life and career that well, I mean, they cannot. Do, unfortunately, and, this is my option. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you're like a real New Yorker because... Uh, <laughs> it's either this or L.A., and we know how I feel about L.A. from the previous interview. Right, right. <laughs> Another reason for our listeners to tune into the last episode where we interviewed Jared on his trajectory and how he came to New York. Um, but... Yeah, a lot of people are moving out, moving, or even just for the summer, like moving in with their um, families and to save money and just kind mm-hmm. of reassessing where they're at because contracts have been canceled, jobs have been eliminated. And oh, that brings me to another point, really interesting, because I was listening to a podcast about a, a museum director and I can't remember her name, unfortunately, sorry, but she mentioned that museums were furloughing and firing staff and and with the intention of hiring them back after the pandemics in order so that they can uh, file for unemployment. So it's a strategy. And I I wonder if that's done enough across the board, if we're going to see a lot of rehirings in like six months. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would imagine so. I mean, so yeah, that's that a would... good thing. Um, so that maybe that means that these uh, positions aren't, you know, these are just temporary layoffs, in other words. But right, um, they're not just law. Right, right. Um, but I do know that also that. I mean, I don't know all museums, but I did. I read an article that certain museums were, you know, twenty percent overall, like just slashing their budget, and. That meant, uh, you know, canceling certain shows, maybe not having as expensive exhibitions, that less uh, production costs, but also 
firing staff that they somehow didn't need and I guess maybe combining uh, certain roles um, in positions, early retirements, things like that, just so that they, and it's probably preemptive because they don't really know what's going to happen, but it's this very conservative financial positioning to kind of protect themselves. Um, But, you know, in a time when they're probably spending more is, is, is better because isn't that what sometimes you have to just throw money at the problem. (laughs) I mean, that's what the government's doing with these, with bailouts um, to big businesses. Well, the government is actually, the government's throwing money, not at the problem. If they were throwing money at the problem, then they would be, you know, paying their citizens to stay home and not, you know, and not prolong the shutdown. But what they're doing is throwing money at corporations and it's not reaching the people. So people are now right. protesting for the right to go back to work to their, you know, corporate job that they hated in the first place. Right. Like, the government went about this so the wrong way. Like Right, this trickle-down effect, right, where it's somehow going to... It's never gonna, been... A, it never works, right. So somehow bailing out Amazon or... Right. So I fact-checked on the 70%. And it, oh, wow, it's right actually on. what it says. It's the number of new leases signed in April dropped down yeah. 70.9. So 71, I was close, 70.9% compared to the same time last year. Oh, I see. So new so, leases. So new leases percentage That's dropped the lowest number of the new leases recorded in a decade, according to a report, well, um, and that's, and Douglas Elliman report. Well, people aren't required to sign leases right now. I mean, I think everyone's just kind of like holding their breath to see what happens. And I don't think anyone wants to get trapped into anything, especially, I mean, yeah, in April, you know, when, when we yeah. had even less information than we do now, no one wants to get trapped into anything that they, uh, you know, could have gotten a better deal for several months later, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Jared, thank you so much for sharing some tools and strategies to deal with this dark reality through your optimism. I'm just trying. <laughs> and your amazing upcoming show, I'm I'm looking forward. Can't wait to see you in person whenever that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. And the beauty of this is that anyone can see your show right now and from anywhere, even in from space. <laughs> right? That's they true. just you know, get on the internet. Hopefully, I mean hopefully everything reopens before we get to space, but yeah. <laughs> and Jared, do you work from home or do you do you still come into the gallery each day? How is I have not day? been going into the gallery. Um, no, I work from, I've, I'm at the point right now where I'm having to alternate uh, spaces on my couch so that the compression of the cushions <laughs> remains even, and I don't just have one large dent. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah getting... I'm, I'm anxious to get back in the gallery. Yeah. I miss that. I think yeah. there's going to be a, an outburst of people wanting to just be out and, you know, so get ready. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, yeah, gallery is a great place if you want something that's stimulating and also, you know, safe during a pandemic and post-pandemic world. So, Any announcements that you would like to say for... Yeah, well, the, the show that I had opened right before the sky fell, Colin Thompson's Unusual Characters, um, that uh, has just been totally put on pause and will continue for a month. Um, after everything or after I open the gallery again and then I'm just going to resume scheduling as planned so so Colin Thompson's show did not open it was scheduled to open it, before it, it did open it opened and it was open for a week and in that week mm-hmm. things were already getting shaky so I just decided to put it all on pause because I'm really proud of the show it's a great show they worked really hard and mm-hmm. you know it deserves to have its proper run mm-hmm. wonderful well, Jared, thank you so much for being back and thank sharing. You. Thank you, Isabella and Rebecca. This is wonderful. You. Sharing how you are facing and uh, how you are resisting this current pandemic outbreak. That's a very, very insightful and thoughtful strategies that you, you've taken on that really advocate for better democracy and better democratic art world. Thank you so much. Thanks for for challenging me to think through it. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to seeing you in person. (laughs) Okay, cool. Yep, we'll go dancing soon. Oh, (laughs) please. Dancing in the streets. (laughs) And we are diving into La Mepris 
by Nicole Renault, a song from her album Songo di Capri from 2014. Thank you so much for tuning in to Radio for Brooklyn and to our podcast. <laughs>